future is bright with promise because you're in it. And my word to you is don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. It is yours to make. And those who come after you will be very grateful for your witness and what you have done. The voice you just heard belongs to the late Reverend Peter J. Gomes, speaking to Harvard University in a 2010 keynote address on Harvard's transition to a more diverse community. Distinguished faculty member for four decades, senior minister at Memorial Church in Harvard Yard, Reverend Gomes is remembered fondly for his spirited take on the world and serving as a moral compass for the community. I'm Amy Montemiro with Harvard Divinity School, and this is Divinity Dialogues, conversations on faith, purpose, and bearing witness. Today we begin a series of special edition interviews with this year's Gomes Distinguished Alumni Honorees. Each year, the Alumni Alumni Council honors the legacy of Reverend Gomes by recognizing graduates whose excellence in life, work, and service pays homage to the mission and values of the Divinity School. From investigative journalism to intersectional poetry and Buddhist ministry to bioethics and medicine, this year's honorees bring the Divinity School's vision, working in service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides to fruition. Each week in June, we'll hear the stories of our honorees. To start us off, I interviewed Joshua Eaton, who earned his Master of Divinity degree in 2010. Joshua is a journalist whose stories have held the powerful accountable and given a voice to the vulnerable. Based in Washington, DC, Joshua has worked on investigative teams at CQ Roll Call and Think Progress. And a quick production note, this interview took place in April 2021 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joshua and I met over Zoom to avoid travel and practice good public health measures. Can you say a little bit about your relationship with religion and or spirituality, particularly the role it may have played before you joined the Divinity School community? Yeah, so uh, I grew up Catholic in the South, uh, in the Bible Belt in Athens, Georgia. Although uh, I was Catholic, I went to a fundamentalist Baptist grade school. So uh, a lot of religion uh, when I was growing up, got interested in Buddhism in college as one does and began practicing and began studying it, um, started attending uh, retreats with two Tibetan teachers. I was raised by my mother and my grandmother, my dad wasn't really in the picture when I was growing up. And my mother and grandmother's family uh, is very working class. I'm, I'm the first person in my immediate family on that side to graduate from college. Before my senior year of college, I had become very interested in Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement. And so I looked around and found an internship again, like internship, quote unquote, you know, really like work study at uh, Haley House uh, in Boston, which is kind of a Buddhist Catholic worker house. Uh, Kathy McKenna, who one of the people who founded it and, and who runs it now, she's a Buddhist. One of the permanent residents there when I was there 
was the future Lama Rod, the Raj soon to be called Lama. And so, uh, so I, I knew Lama Rod there. That was an incredible experience. And uh, that is how I became aware of the Divinity School. Following summer, summer after I graduated, uh, I went to the, the monastery for, for part of the summer. And then I started an AmeriCorps program in Georgia for a year. Uh, and it was while I was in that program that I applied to HDS. I actually didn't apply anywhere else. I was, I was sort of like, I, I want to go to this place, first generation college graduate, went to the University of West Georgia, you know, not necessarily an Ivy feeder school. And so I knew it was kind of a moonshot. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll keep working in homeless services or something. I'll, you know, I'll do something. I have no idea what my life would be like had that happened. But I, much to my surprise, uh, got accepted. Thank you so much for sharing that background and that story. And, and you referenced in, in uh, that response the idea that the Harvard Divinity School is oftentimes um, surprising to a lot of folks when they realize it is a multi-faith, interfaith space with you know 30 plus different backgrounds and religion or spiritual um, identities in the student body. So with that surprise in mind, is there something else that you may have learned here that others might be interested in or surprised to learn? Is there a, a certain myth that you, you could help bust for folks who might not have as broad an understanding of what the Divinity School is? I don't think a lot of people really know what to do with Divinity Schools, period, or, or what to think of them. I remember one of my classmates when I was at HDS, she was taking a course at another, I don't know if it, I don't remember if it was the Kennedy School or where it was, but she was taking a course in another school. And one of the other students asked her something like, so do y'all just like learn how to pray? I think a lot of people think of knowing about religion as uh, like maybe knowing a set of facts about religions instead of kind of having some broader understanding of religion as like a category of human experience and, and what that means and religiosity. After going to the divinity school, when I look at some of the ideologies coming out of Silicon Valley, for example, that aren't explicitly about any well, I'll say any sort of metaphysical higher power um, are, you know, aren't about any kind of uh, afterlife or anything necessarily supernatural. You know, anything that, that most people would think of as religion, but, you know, I, I see them and I think, oh, that's, there's some religion at play there. Sure. Or spirituality yeah. or just some sense of the, the mystical, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of leadership, we can turn now to a bit of a broader question from your perspective how can we as individuals find our way to lead with ethics and with compassion especially while weathering difficulties when i was reading this question i was struggling with it because part of it has to, to do with sort of my my politics which i as a reporter i kind of largely keep under my under my hat but uh, also with my my spirituality you know, I, I did Buddhist studies when I was at HDS. I was very active in the Buddhist student group. I started going back to church a few years ago. Wouldn't say that um, I'm not Buddhist anymore. My main 
spiritual community right now is church. Uh, although during the pandemic, my main spiritual community has been Netflix. That's a different matter. The term leadership kind of makes me uncomfortable in a lot of ways because, you know, I really, I mean, I really believe all that stuff about the first being last and the last being first. If you're in a, a leadership position, even if you're not in a leadership position, if you're just around leader, you know, people who are in leadership positions, you know, the way to do that ethically is not to fetishize it, not to fetishize power. I don't think many of my friends in college came from, it's not completely true, but, you know, most of them didn't come, they didn't have parents who were like lawyers, you know. Harvard was a really new experience for me in that way. You may not want me to say this, but uh, I, I will. And that's, Harvard makes its brand on fetishizing leadership producing leaders, you know, that was maybe a negative education for me in a way. I think that's definitely less pronounced at the divinity school, but just as an institution, that kind of ethos sort of pervades the place. Sure, sure. It's a metric of success. Yeah. Also, you know, as a reporter, power has to have accountability. One of the most, if not the most important role that the press plays uh, is is there. There has to be accountability, and and there has to be accountability, even for people you like or people you think are good or people you think are trying to do the right thing. When you're talking about fetishizing leadership or power, given your background with Buddhism, I had to ask: Is there an attachment, non-attachment issue at play there? That if you're so attached to power, you're almost in a space where you can then create suffering rather than mitigating harm or suffering. And and if you could tell us a little bit about that. You know, the story of Buddhism is the story of someone who gave up leadership. Uh, You know, Siddhartha Gautama, he he left the palace, right? Despite the best efforts of his, his family. And so if in Christianity, the, the symbol of power is, you know, Christ on the cross, then in, in Buddhism, it's, you know, the Buddha in, you know, robes made of rags sitting underneath the tree, uh, you know, the Bodhi tree. A few questions about how you bring your education to fruition in your, your everyday experiences. So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, as a journalist with a master's in divinity, you know, how do you foster respect for pluralism in, in your work and in your everyday life? When I'm thinking about my work and what I'm trying to do, fostering pluralism doesn't necessarily come to mind. Uh, although it's, I mean, it's certainly relevant. I, as a journalist, I'm not an advocate uh, and I'm not a, an activist, but journalism does have certain baseline fundamental values it rests on. Uh, I think democracy is a baseline fundamental value for journalism. Free speech, free press, certainly baseline fundamental values for journalism. I think equity, you know, on the basis of race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, religion, ethnicity, national origin, et cetera, is or or at least should be a kind of baseline fundamental value. That journalism rests on. And so 
know, I think it, it kind of needs to be baked into the pie. And then, so when we talk about like accountability in journalism, like what are, what are we holding people accountable to? I mean, often we're holding them accountable to their own words, but we're also holding them accountable to those baseline fundamental values. Too often in, in journalism, I think that religion reporting can get relegated to uh, the style or the lifestyle section. It's kind of uh, like, a, like a soft Sunday feature. When people interview the Dalai Lama, however wonderful uh, uh, I think the Dalai Lama is, uh, and he is wonderful in, in many, many ways, you know, people don't interview him the way they would interview uh, another world leader or the way they would interview the Pope. It's, it's not as hard hitting. There can be a sort of, uh, a sort of backhanded prejudice to that, uh, a sort of condescension to that or uh, uh, patronizing to that. You know, I don't think that fostering pluralism is all, you know, like singing Kumbaya and, and holding hands around the fire. I think that uh, you know, part of fostering pluralism is holding religious leaders in all of these different communities accountable in, in the same way that you would hold you know, political leaders accountable or, or religious leaders in Christian communities accountable. Mm, thank you so much. Uh, you got at my next question about what some of the barriers are to, to fostering pluralism or, or frankly, getting back to those fundamental values in journalism that you were, you were talking about earlier. So thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say about overcoming some of those barriers or what we can do to make sure that those fundamental values, which are critically important in journalism, but one may argue also important for those of us who aren't journalists, um, would you like to say a little bit more about that? In journalism specifically, I think one of the biggest challenges right now, uh, and this is true in other areas too, is how do you fund work that is important, but not necessarily profitable? In journalism, a lot of times that means uh, investigative work. Uh, it means coverage of undercover communities. The quickest way, if, if you're looking for clicks and, and you're looking for eyeballs for like ad revenue, for example, uh, the quickest way to get that is to publish a story that basically confirms people's outrage. One, one of the few public opinions as a reporter I do have is that there's too much opinion and not enough reporting. The hot take industrial complex is, you know, massive. And, you know, we, we need more original reporting and it, it's good to, to seek that out. Hot take industrial complex. Thank you for that. I will I will cite you when I use it later. Thank you. Okay, and just some closing thoughts here. Um, the divinity school's focus can can sometimes be characterized as you know, quote, making a world a difference. What are one or two tangible ways that everyday folks can help bring that that focus to fruition? So in other words, uh, how can we see the vision for ethical leadership or, or getting closer to an original source? Um, how can we see that play out in action? Subscribe to your local newspaper. Very, very important. I think 
know, in terms of journalism, trying to read those people who are doing original reporting, uh, sharing their work, supporting them when you can. I know it's it's a little between the 500,000 streaming services we all have to subscribe to now and, you know, the, the publications we all want to read. Uh, it, it can be a lot, but it does help. And I think especially the more people read those stories that are maybe a little bit less immediately satisfying, but, you know, important, you know, it, it really does. People in newsrooms really do pay attention to, you know, what people are reading. Um, and it, it really does make a huge, huge difference if people are reading those things and sharing them. Misinformation is such a huge problem right now. And, and a lot of it is driven by this kind of immediately satisfying stuff that confirms people's priors. Most Fox News viewers probably don't have an understanding of the difference between, you know, Tucker Carlson and the Fox News reporter who's like actually sending in a Pentagon press briefing every day and asking questions and talking to officials and putting in public records requests. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, there are people over there doing like the the real work of reporting. It's difficult. I don't know how to swim against human nature in some of this stuff. Somehow we've got to have a healthier news ecosystem. A lot of that comes down to putting time and attention and energy and, and eyeballs and shares and subscription dollars into the good stuff. And, you know, uh, also uh, anyone out there listening is uh, uh, a money bags who, uh, you know, wants to just put a ton of dollars into investigative reporting, then they should by all means feel absolutely free to do exactly that. Excellent. I love it. Okay. So watch out for the hot take industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Get your local newspaper, support them, and a plea to any money bags out there to invest <laughs> in investigative journalism. Thank you. Three very tangible, tangible things to, to walk away from this talk with. Yeah. Well, Joshua Eaton, thank you again so much for taking the time to meet with us. Congratulations on your distinguished you. alumni um, award Gosh. in honor of the late, great Peter Gomes. And uh, we can't thank you enough for all the good that you, you do out there in the world and for your time today. Thank you so, so much. Can I, can I tell y'all before we go, can I tell y'all one little Peter Gomes anecdote? Is yes, that okay? Of course, please, please. And thank you. So um, I was at tea once with uh, a group of other divinity school students and we were kind of, you know, people stand around in little circles with their cookies and their teacup talking. And we were kind of, you know, I don't know what we we're talking about, but we, we, we're just in our own little world and people were kind of filtering out from around us and we kind of hadn't noticed. He kind of wandered over to us and uh, he, he just said, you know, it's a terrible thing to be the last one to leave. And that was all he said. Many thanks to Joshua for his time, for his insight, and for bringing truth to light with responsible journalism. And thanks to you for tuning in to the special edition of Divinity Dialogues. This podcast came together with the help of some remarkable colleagues, including Caroline Cataldo with her editing and producing expertise, Kristen Pont with her exceptional work with the Gomes Award event, and folks across the communications and development teams at the school. 
We'll have a new episode coming out next week featuring a fascinating interview with Lama Rod Owens, author, activist, and one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. You can find us on the HDS SoundCloud channel or subscribe to Harvard Divinity School on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss a new episode. You can also find the school on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about HDS and our amazing community. Until next time.